As I said a moment ago, we come back to Hebrews chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, be turning there. And we've been speaking about this letter for quite a long time, almost a year. And it's a great letter, one of the great letters. I don't know how, again, we justify ranking them. They're all great. They're the Word of God. Um, but this one has so much truth in it that we need to hear that reminds us of how the Old and New Testaments work together or um, are speaking of one plan of salvation that God has had and has worked out in Christ Jesus. And so we've seen again that God have, has a, given us a great, mighty, and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And one of the things that we've seen in that and tried to emphasize over and again is the necessity of the incarnation to that end. That outside of the incarnation, this could not take place. That it was necessary to have the incarnation that this mission could be fulfilled. That Christ needed to take on true humanity. Now, Hebrews has been laboring to make this point consistently for quite some time, hasn't it? Even into the second chapter, uh, where it was talking about that every high priest appointed amongst men uh, comes from men. He represents man. And therefore, Christ had to be human, if you will, to represent man. He had to experience what we experience. And so we see that. He needed his true divinity, which he has eternally had, but he also needed true humanity. And so all these things are shown to us time and again. Now, he needs to be able to sympathize with our weakness, with our challenges. And it says he does that. He's able to sympathize with us. He is our faithful high priest. He is able to understand us and represent us well before his Father because he has shared in our weaknesses. He has encountered our trials and tribulations. He has encountered all the things that we as human beings encounter, and yet he did it without sinning. And so all these things must be held together if we understand how he is the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect high priest. Uh, all of these things are working together as this author shows us that he might be what he calls today the author of eternal life the author of eternal life. So only the perfect God-man can accomplish the things of which we are speaking. And that is what he has done. He has accomplished the task of oblation or sacrifice, the atonement. We often uh, speak about that as if that's the only side of this. But Hebrews would remind us that a sacrifice without a perfect high priest wouldn't avail us a whole lot. We need both the sacrifice and the priest who can enter into the presence of God and mediate on our behalf eternally. And so again, this is why this author is working so hard to explain to us the importance of Melchizedek and how Christ is not a priest like Levi who could offer sacrifices on a continual basis. There's no need for that. Christ has offered a once and for all sacrifice which is perfectly sufficient and he mediates on our behalf eternally as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All these things are important. It's a reminder that he accomplished this needed salvation and reconciliation, and it's found in no one else. And so I want us to read the larger section of text, this long sentence that's given to us in the Greek, so we can consider the section we're looking at today. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, 
Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So as we begin today, I want us to look at two points. First of all, Christ being perfected, and second of all, Christ offering salvation. Now, as we begin today, we come to our text. We recognize, as we've been saying, it's a long sentence in the Greek. Uh, We've been looking at this sentence for a few weeks. It's all tied together. We shouldn't miss that. And it, in fact, today's text looks back to what we looked at last week. Well, how do we know that? Well, it begins immediately with the word and, kai in the Greek. It's a a word that ties it together. So again, what he's talking about goes back to what we've already looked at. Well, where does our exposition today begin? With this phrase, having been perfected. Now this is speaking of Jesus. And I mentioned this last Sunday, but uh, this ought to perk our ears up and, and, and challenge us a little bit. Because how can Jesus, the second person of the divine trinity, right, eternally glorious and perfect, how can this scripture say that he has been made perfect or having been perfected? How can that be said? Well, in the same way that we looked at last Sunday, that it said that he learned obedience. Again, uh, we would ask ourselves, how can God learn anything? Well, in a sense, there's a sense in which he cannot learn facts, but he can gain experiences that are necessary, this author says, to the role for which he has been appointed. And so today as we look at this, it says, having been perfected. Well, that word perfected is teleo. It is linked to the word tetelestai. You may remember that word on the cross. Jesus cries out tetelestai. It is finished. Well, likewise, this word uh, teleo here means something like to have finished or be made complete, to be made ready, to be made Perfect for something. Again, it isn't that Jesus was less than perfect in his divinity, his his perfect divine nature. And even his humanity is without sin. But this is referring to, for this high priestly calling that's been placed upon him, he didn't have everything he needed. He didn't. Until he came into this world, took on flesh, lived as a human being, Tempted and tried in all ways as we are, yet without sin, went to Calvary's cross, died as our perfect sacrifice, and rose victorious. All of that is a part of the mission he came to earth to do. Now again, we know it's necessary or we could have been saved without him coming. But he came because it was necessary for him to come if this mission was going to be undertaken. And so again, it seems strange to talk about Christ in this way, that he had to be made perfect when he is God. But again, uh, this required him being a man and being tempted and tried and all those things that we face daily. It's the only way he could be our representative, our high priest. And so again, he was made complete by the mission uh, in coming into this world, not only in the mission, but for the mission. So again, you have all of this coming together. Now, he has to identify with our weaknesses, with our struggles, with our challenges, with our suffering. He does all of those things. All of those things. Now I pray that we're emphasizing this enough that when you hear a preacher say um, the incarnation is a secondary doctrine, 
an unimportant doctrine, that your ears will instantly hear the problem with that. Instantly hear that it isn't so. The Bible tells you it isn't so. The Scriptures make it clear that if Christ did not come and go through all these things, He could not offer us salvation. He could not be the author of salvation. It could not have flowed out of Him because He couldn't have offered it. He had to come and do these things if He was going to offer us salvation. And so again, we need to recognize, I I pray that we will, as we hear those things, we will recognize the error in it because the Bible makes it clear He had to come and do these things. Well, how was He made perfect? But we just spoke about it. He came into the world. He suffered. He was tempted and tried. It goes back to the very things we looked at last Sunday. It says, in the days of his flesh. In other words, when he walked upon the earth, in his earthly life and ministry, what did he do? He offered up prayers and supplications. Right? He, he was in need. He prayed for strength. He prayed for all these things. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And he did so not in some fictional way, but with vehement cries and tears. Earnestly he cried and he prayed. And he prayed to him, to God, who was able to save him from death. And we looked at that last Sunday. And it says he was heard. It was answered. Now we would say he, he went to the cross. He still died. Yes, that's the wrong way of thinking about being saved from death. He was not allowed to see corruption. He did not stay in the grave. God delivered him from the state of death. Just there in the Apostles' Creed, on the back of your bulletin, you will see the the way the church has worded this from the very beginning. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. My friends, again, we need to recognize that as the Heidelberg Catechism says, he was buried to show that he truly died. He did die. It wasn't a fiction. He did die. So again, all these things were part of what he came to do, and we see it there. He knew that God was able to deliver him. He prayed for that deliverance. God raised him from the dead. He was heard because of his reverence, his godly fear. And then again, part of this mission again, He was a son, yet he learned obedience. Again, that would seem oxymoronical or or somehow troubling to us, except we realize what it means is the Scriptures tell us he came and was placed under the law. Right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Christ was under the law. He who was the author, if you will, of, of the law, became under the law. He had to live perfectly by the law. He came as the last Adam. This new head in which we can stand, the first Adam, did not obey, if you will, the word and commands of God. Jesus did. He came perfectly faithful to the will of God. He was sinless. If He was not, we have no perfect sacrifice. We have no perfect high priest. We have no hope. We are yet in our sins. And so again, it's important to recognize this. He came and learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And, and again, uh, learning obedience often comes through suffering. Christ, even as we looked at last Sunday in Gethsemane, praying, you know, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Again, the statement of perfect obedience to the will of his Father, to the will of his Father. And it's because of that that he's been perfected. Because he came into the world. He has taken on 
a human nature. He has lived under the law, lived perfectly by the law, lived perfectly by the will of God, tempted and tried as we all are, had our weaknesses as we have weakness, and yet he did all of that without sin. And that makes him the perfect high priest. It perfects him. It completes his qualifications to serve in the role. Well, again, we might ask, what does this mean? What are those qualifications? Well, we've looked at them for quite some time, but think about them one more time. Number one, he became a man, which was necessary if he was going to be a priest on behalf of men. Told to us in chapter 2, it's told to us in this chapter, it is a principle that is given to us. A high priest is selected from among men. He completed that. He suffered, which is common to all men. How can he be our high priest if he doesn't share in our suffering? Now, That might seem like a small point, but it's an important point. You know, if you read lectures uh, to, to my students by Spurgeon, he says one of the first questions he asks a minister who comes to him, uh, or a young man wanting to go into the ministry, is, tell me how you've suffered. I think, in fact, it was the first question he asked. Tell me how you've suffered. Because he said, if you've never gone through suffering, how can you minister to those who have suffered or are suffering? So again, it's this principle we see again here. He has suffered as we have suffered. He is able to understand our trials and tribulations. He endured human weakness. He got hungry. He got tired. He got weak. He knows what it's like to be human in that sense. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. He faithfully faced death. Wasn't easy on him. We read in the Garden of Gethsemane the the great difficulty of that hour praying and yet at the end not my will but your will be done again facing death is common to all of us all of us and it was something he faced faithfully and he was born under the law and fulfilled it perfectly and we understand that Paul makes it very clear that we are sinners not righteous none of us are righteous we have gone astray from the commands of God. All of us are lawbreakers. If we stand in our own righteousness, we have no righteous standing in which to stand. None. All of us are in great and grave difficulty and trouble. And yet Christ, born under the law, fulfilling it perfectly. And so He was made complete for the task. Without these five things being true, He isn't able to stand as our perfect sacrifice and more importantly, our perfect high priest. And so it's in this way that this author says he became the author of eternal salvation. The author of eternal salvation. Now he says that right here in our text. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now some of you, if you're looking at NASB or an ESV, it'll say the source of eternal salvation. And that's simple enough. Both mean the same thing. It's soteria. It's Uh, salvation flows out of him he is the one who offers it he is the grounds of it it's from him that we receive it and this author says if it weren't for what he did here and being made perfect by what he did here then he couldn't offer it there would be no eternal salvation to offer to fallen sinners and so he came and did all of this accomplished all of this that he might be the author the grounds the source from which eternal salvation flows But I'd have you stop there just for a second and think about what's said. Eternal salvation. This isn't a temporary salvation. This isn't a salvation that, uh, you know, you need to come back for regular checkups. It's not like Aaron where we've got to come back over and over and offer new sacrifices constantly. 
It's not like Aaron who had to go and all those who came after Aaron who had to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur and offer a sacrifice on behalf of all of God's people. And yet it's going to be due again next Yom Kippur and the next. We spoke earlier about the errors of, of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. It's on this same point, isn't it? And yet Christ offered an eternal salvation. An eternal salvation. Soteria, it's the word we get soteriology from. The study of salvation. And it says here that it is eternal. Ionios, eternal. Never ending. Abiding. Abiding means it stays with you. It doesn't pass away. It doesn't drop by the wayside. You can't lose it. It is with you if you have had it secured in Christ Jesus. And so again, it means that Christ is our true and eternal safe harbor. And this author wants us to understand that. And that's why when we come back over and over again, the author is using terms like this to say, this is a salvation that doesn't pass away. That once you're in a reconciled state before God, you are saved. Now the Scriptures say we have been saved, or being saved, and shall be saved. These are the three tenses, if you will, of our justification, sanctification, and glorification. But again, this state of salvation that we have in Christ is eternal. It's eternal. So we have to deal with these texts like we're coming up to in, in chapter 6 and have looked at already about what it means when he warns them about slipping away or drifting away. And we very much interpret this the way the church has, at least our Baptist forefathers have, which is what's being spoken of here is a faith that you didn't actually have, of sailing right past and it being an evidence that you didn't truly believe. We say, well, what, what basis can we base that on? Well, the entirety of Scripture, I would argue, but even if you want to look at just Hebrews, we'd make a couple of points. And that's, first of all, using words like ionios, which means everlasting and abiding. That's an important word. It's an important word. He could have used other words. Conditional salvation. He didn't do that. But also, he uses the example of the Exodus. And he asks you, what do you think about those people who left from Egypt? Were they truly faithful people of God, who somehow later turned against God, or did their turning against God give evidence that they were never believers in God. And he doesn't make you wonder about that. He tells you they showed they were never faithful. They were never faithful. They never had faith in Christ. They never had faith in the promises of God, if you want to look at it from the perspective of Exodus. They didn't believe. And so again, this is an eternal salvation. It's why we hold to this being true, that there is a true doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Because if we have this salvation that's being spoken of here, it does not pass away. It does not pass away. Now I want you to notice something here. Our author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not say that this salvation is for those who believe in Him, but for those who obey Him. Now we have another doctrinal thing we've got to think about for a moment, don't we? Because we say, wait a minute, we proclaim, we affirm, we are saved by faith alone. Amen. We are saved by faith alone. We are saved by nothing other than faith, right? But here's the important thing to think about. This author is speaking to a group of people or writing to a group of people who claim that they have faith. They claim that they're Christians. They claim that they have known Christ. 
The problem isn't in what they say, it's what they're about to do. They're about to walk away from the church, no longer identify themselves with the people of God in Christ Jesus. They're going to go back to the synagogue. This is very much why we need to think about the entire context of the letter that's being given to us. What is the example this author has just given us? We just mentioned it. Think back to the Exodus generation. Here was a similar people, our author is warning. A very similar people. In what way? They left Egypt. Right? They left Egypt. They were freed by God in signs, in power. And they went out together. Did they claim to be the people of God? Yes. It's self-evident. We're with the people of Israel. We are leaving Egypt. We have been freed. We're going out into the wilderness. Of course, we're the people of God. Did they claim to believe in God? Of course they did. God had delivered them. The problem the author points to is their fruit didn't back it up. Right? When you looked at the fruit, it was clear that what they claimed to believe, they didn't believe. Because every time there was a challenge in which they were at a crossroads, that a people of faith would stand firm, trusting in God for their deliverance, they crumbled. They crumbled. And he says it was evidence, their rebellion, not just faltering, rebellion. That's the word given here. They rebelled against God in the wilderness. God said, they shall not enter my rest. Why? They rebelled against Him. They showed what was in their heart. Now, here's what I would ask you. How are we to know what is in a person's heart? Here we have a group of, of people in the, this author's day saying, we are Christians, we believe in Christ. Uh, that's going to remain true. We're just going to walk away from all of you all and go back to the people of Moses. We're going to go back over there and park in the synagogue. And, and we tell you in our hearts nothing's changed. In our outward behavior, things have changed. But not in our hearts. We, we believe in Christ. And this author says, as we would say, I have no way of seeing your heart. As a pastor standing up here before you, I have no way of seeing your heart. No way. There's no spiritual stethoscope that I have that I can put on your chest and listen and go, oh, I hear a spiritual heartbeat. Only God can see inwardly. I can't. But God has given us a way to see the state of a person's heart, and that's by their actions. He says, by their fruit you shall know them. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And by this way, he says, you will know them. Now, is Jesus a liar? No. Then there is a principle here that is true. The only thing we can judge is what we see in a person, their behavior over time. And what the author of Hebrews says, it was made evident that they were not the people of God, and God declared it clearly, so it was made evident when God said, they shall not enter my rest. But this author is saying, even if that had not happened, we would know who they were, because they never obeyed God. They always went astray in their heart, and they did not believe Him. They rebelled time and again. And the author says, this isn't a one-time thing of which they repented and, and changed, and no, over and again, they rebelled against God. They showed they did not place faith in Him. So this author says, and has been saying for a long time, you're in danger of being just like them. Because you claim something with your mouth, but you're just like talkative. Pilgrim's Progress we've been going through, right? Talkative, a man who can speak all the things that need to be said, and yet there is no inward change in his heart. 
You know, uh, Christian says to, to faithful, ask him about his experience. Not his knowledge of Christ, about his experience of Christ. And he has nothing to say. He knows nothing of the experience of what it means to be in relationship with Christ. He just knows about Christ. My friends, these are people who talk about it, but they haven't experienced it. They have no faith in God. And he says in the same way here, you're going to demonstrate it because you've talked a good game. You said you know Christ. You've trusted in Christ. You believe Christ. And we've heard your testimony. But now you're saying, I'm going to depart from the people of Christ. I no longer want to be identified with you. See, putting it that way sounds a little different, doesn't it? Not just like I'm going to go over here because it's safer, but to say, for my own good, I'm going to refuse to be acknowledged as a part of the people of Christ. And this author says, who would do that if they're truly in Christ? We're called together as a people. Who are my brothers and sisters, Jesus said. Those who do the will of my Father. We are a Christian family. We say it all the time. Is it real? Is it true? This author says if you walk away, you're saying, I don't want to be a part of that. I'd rather be over here with Moses. Well, now we have the warnings of Paul in Romans, right? That he who would be justified by the law must do the law, must keep the law, must keep all of the law. If that's where you want to park, you're going to have trouble. But we over here stand as a people in Christ Jesus, saved by His grace, whatever may come, whatever may come. This author says, such a grave act of disobedience as turning away and walking away and refusing to participate and be acknowledged as part of the people of Christ is no different, he's saying, than what happened in the wilderness when the children of Israel said, we'd rather go back to Egypt. We'd rather go back to Egypt. If we're going to die, why would we want to die here in the desert? Let's go back to Egypt where at least we had food to eat and and had lives. Let's go back there. Let's turn away from where God is leading us back to where it was easy. And the Bible doesn't leave you any question about where those people were spiritually, right? These were not the people of God. They died in the wilderness never having made it to the promised land. They died, the scripture says, outside the promise. This author says, be careful, you're about to too. Because if you walk away from the people of Christ, you refuse to be acknowledged as part of them, then you're not part of them. He was ashamed to name Christ. Christ will not name him. Jesus says that, right? In the same way, to refuse participation and acknowledgement among the people of Christ, it means you're going to be setting yourself outside, recognizing, acknowledging to all, I'm not amongst the people of Christ. I'm not... I have no part or lot with the people of Christ. I'm walking away. I'm walking away to my own destruction. So my friends, what this author wants us to realize is when he speaks about our works, those who obey, what he means is that work, that fruit is evidence of a salvation we already have in Christ. It doesn't buy us salvation. It doesn't purchase us salvation. We are not saved by our works. But those who are saved and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born again by the Spirit of God, will bring forth good works. Not all at the same rate. Not all in the same volume. You know, but we will all bring forth good works such that it will be obvious. It will be obvious that we are the people of Christ. Now, 
increasing fruitfulness over time? Yes, we don't start out um, where we hopefully end up. But again, this is a principle that we need to see that the scriptures talk about again and again. This is what James is dealing with. Many people struggle with James because James goes through this very thing, doesn't he? Faith without works is dead. He's not opposing Paul. He's just saying you can't claim to have a faith which hasn't changed you. Right? A dead faith is no faith at all. Right? A faith that you say, well, I believe, and, but there's no evidence of any change. I think what James would argue with Paul both is how weak do you consider the Holy Spirit of God? Because according to Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, we are being transformed by the Spirit of God. That means we aren't what we once were. We are a new creation in Christ. We are not what we once were. If there's no obvious change in us, then we'd have to wonder if any of that is a reality. And so again, I think this author is trying to emphasize this point because he's talking about not walking away. He's talking about an action which will give evidence of whether or not the tree is good or bad. If you walk away, you show us as those in the wilderness did that they do not believe, that you do not believe. So my friends, stand fast, stand firm, stand in the faith. Now, as we look at this, it goes on to say that he is called by God as high priest. That's the very thing we've been talking about, we've been looking at. Jesus didn't appoint himself. His father appointed him as high priest, and not just a high priest according to the order of Aaron, but no, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we looked at that back in verse 6. An important principle of being a high priest is you must be appointed. Jesus was. Based on all he had endured, all he had suffered, that he had been made perfect and complete for this job, God appointed him as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the only order that can offer eternal salvation. Right? Not a once and for now salvation, but a once and for all salvation. Now this author, we want to look at this because we're going to get into this next Sunday. But he says, we have much to say about this. There is much to be said about this. And by the way, as we move forward, you're going to see he has much to say about this, about this uh, order of Melchizedek and the priesthood to which Christ is appointed. But he says, it's going to be hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. And my friends, we need to recognize that that is a warning. Don't become dull of hearing. Don't come here and sit in a pew and just think, how much longer? And I don't just say that because I'm the one up here, right? But it's important, it's important that we listen to the Word of God, we consider the Word of God, we pray over the Word of God, we read the Word of God, we meditate on the Word of God, we contemplate the Word of God, we seek what it says to us. Because God is speaking to us in this way. This is how He has revealed Himself in times past through the prophets. and Finally in Christ Jesus and this new Testament revelation that we're given that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, the, the perfect Word of God. We need to guard ourselves against becoming dull of hearing. Oh, I know this text. Or this Melchizedek priesthood, I've heard something about that. This author is telling us this is the key to the life that we have in Christ. That if this priesthood did not exist, if Christ came according to the order of Levi, guess what? We're no better off than they were under Moses. And under Aaron, it's because there's this other priesthood that offers eternal salvation 
that we have this lasting and abiding hope and a salvation that cannot be lost, cannot be dropped away, cannot uh, fail to abide. It's because of Christ and what He's done. So we don't want to be dull of hearing. We're going to get the explanation as if we're dull of hearing because uh, He's speaking to a people who are dull of hearing. But I'm thankful for that. Because, you know, we get the full lengthy argument on how Melchizedek pictures Christ's priesthood in every little detail and foreshadowing that's available to us. And as we get closer to that, we'll be looking at what's said in Genesis of Melchizedek. There's not much there. What's said of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, there's almost nothing there, right? It's already been quoted in this chapter. And yet what little is there, this author says, let's exposit that and look at Jesus and how it points to his priesthood. My friends, we need to recognize a couple of things here as we close this morning. First of all, Christ alone could do this. Christ alone is the perfect God-man. He alone could come and be this perfect high priest, this perfect sacrifice. He alone could do it. Aaron couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. That's why Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. The grace offered here in Jesus Christ. Because if righteousness came through the law, Christ died for nothing. He died in vain. But he didn't die in vain because Aaron couldn't offer it. Moses couldn't offer it. Only Christ could offer it and only in this way. And so this author says, don't lose sight of that. Don't forget that. Don't turn to another that cannot offer it to you. And then realize this. We are saved by faith in Christ. We are saved by the grace of God, by trusting in Christ. No question about that. But we should never take that as a license to sin or disobedience. This is told to us over and over again because our actions evidence to the world, to those outside, what's really going on in our heart. We can put up a a front like the Pharisees did, but ultimately, sooner or later, our actions reveal what our heart is like. And so there's a warning here in Scripture. Yes, trust in Christ. You will be saved by faith. All who trust in Christ shall be saved. But all who trust in Christ shall be changed. All. Amen.